This episode of Truth's Table is brought to you by Dwell Audio Bible App. Dwell's mission is to help you get in the Word and stay in the Word. Visit dwellapp.io slash truthstable to get 10% off a yearly subscription or 33% off Dwell for Life. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKemini. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, C. How you doing, girl? I'm doing. I'm out here. We have I, we have an exciting exciting time today, plans. So I'm, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm eager. I'm an eager beaver. <laughs> I know. I know. I, hey, I'm good. You know, I'm good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful to be in the land of the living. Okay. Uh, With all that we got going on for real. Uh, yes. <laughs> Another day. And that new day, new mercies. And clearly we need those. <laughs> that ain't no small thing. So yeah, no, I am actually super hyped for who we got at the table. Cause we are still in our, we going to learn today series. You we know, we learn. are playing. We going to learn. I hope y'all got your notebooks. Cause uh, you going to need to be taking some notes. Cause you're going to learn a whole bunch today. Um, because the topic on the table is HBCUs, past and present, with Dr. Jelani Favors. Hey, Dr. Favors, welcome to the table. Hello, thank you so much for having me, and glad to pull up a, a, a chair at the table and sit with you, sisters. I, I Come appreciate the invitation. On. Come on, we are grateful to have you. You know, I, I didn't get to tell you about this in the pre-show rundown, but you know, we don't have many brothers at the table, Dr. Favors. So, so, so sometimes so that's necessary. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but we are so happy to have you. We are so happy to have you. You know, and just in case our sisters at the table don't know who you are, I'm going to tell them a little something about you, okay? Right. Dr. Jelani M. Favors is an associate professor of history at Clayton State University. He has received major fellowships in support of his research that includes an appointment as a humanities large fellow at Duke University in 2013, and he was an inaugural recipient of the Mellon HBCU Fellowship at the John Hope Franklin Humanities Institute at Duke in 2009. In 2019, Dr. Favors released his first book entitled Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Foster Generations of Leadership and Activism, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press. Shelter in a Time of Storm was the recipient of the 2020 Stone Book Award presented annually by the Museum of African American History in Boston. It also won the 2020 Linian Smith Book Award given yearly by the Southern Regional Council and the University of Georgia Libraries, and was one of the five finalists for the 2020 Polly Murray Book Prize presented by the African American Intellectual History Society. Dr. Favors' research and commentary have appeared in several media outlets, including CNN, C-SPAN, MSNBC, The Washington Post, Market Watch, The Atlantic, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and The Ohio State Conversation. He earned his Ph.D. in history and his M.A. in African-American studies from the Ohio State University. He is a graduate of North Carolina A&T State University, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in history with honors. Dr. Favors is a native of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and he currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the table, Dr. Favors. We are so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Doer of all the things and winner of all the awards. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I um I'm so I'm so honored to have you here and I am just really excited to learn more about HBCUs. And so before we even go deeper into the conversation, I really want um you to talk to our sisters at the table about what is an HBCU? How do they come to be? Why do they still exist? Because we know we, we have an international uh, table, if you will. We got our Black sisters tuning in from London, UK. We got them in, from Kenya, South Africa tuning in. And even our sisters here in America, some of them don't know um, necessarily what an HBCU is. So I don't want to take that for granted. Can you talk to us about uh, what they are, why they exist, and how they came to be? 
Well, first of all, welcome uh, uh, to all the sisters from around the world. Uh, it's, it's great to be speaking <laughs> with you uh, and talking about the legacy of historically black colleges and universities. So that's what that, that acronym stands for, historically black colleges mm-hmm. and universities. Uh, and it's an, actually a designation that, that these institutions didn't receive until, uh, I believe, the late 1960s, early 1970s from the federal mm. government. Um, but these are institutions, they're colleges. And, and the first uh, uh, institution was founded in 1837. You have to keep in mind, um, for those who may not be aware of this, um, but one, it was actually illegal uh, to teach African-Americans mm. to read in the midst of slavery. Uh, yes. and, then, and then secondly, uh, for most of the 19th century and 20th century, when many of these institutions were founded, uh, segregation was in, in full sway. And so uh, African-Americans could not attend um, what, what the opposite side of this is what we refer to as predominantly white institutions, so our, our white colleges, right? And, and so mm-hmm. African Americans could not attend these institutions, and so they carved out spaces for themselves. And again, in 1837, um, the first institution to serve the, in this capacity was founded. It's the Institute for Colored Youth, um, founded in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, and the ICY uh, is is now known as Cheney State University. So Cheney State University is the oh, first. Yes. HBCU yes. to found to be founded in 1837, and that's followed by um, the Ashman Institute. Um, Lincoln College was founded in 1854, also in Philadelphia, and then Wilberforce College was founded in 1856 uh, in um, uh, in Wilberforce, Ohio. So even before slavery is over with in, in 1865 with the Thirteenth Amendment, you have these three mm-hmm. institutions serving as my book suggest as shelters in a time of storm. There was racial mm-hmm. violence that exploded in the streets of, of the North. African-Americans mm-hmm. could not go wherever they wanted to in the North. African-Americans were under threat of being recaptured and sold into slavery throughout the North. And so there was a need, a pressing need um, to, to one, use education as a lever for upward mobility, but more importantly, to equip students with um, the talent and the skills uh, and the verbiage um, to call out and to to uh, demand an end to slavery, uh, a deconstruction of, of white white supremacy, uh, mm-hmm. to, to to serve as a platform for for calling out uh, uh, for greater uh, economic, social, and political rights for African Americans, and that's exactly what these institutions did from the very outset. Um, you begin to see that blueprint being developed. So, uh, and then of course you enter into the Reconstruction era of 1865, moving forward, and you begin to see a proliferation, a growth of these institutions, particularly in the Deep South. Uh, many of them are going to be founded by religious mm. um, um, institutions. Uh, Wilberforce itself is founded by uh, the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, so there's this deep relationship and connection um, that Black folks have um, with the idea of education, as I often um, like to suggest in my work, that African-Americans saw education as a figurative messiah. They saw this as a way forward, right? Some, in a sense, to lead them forward uh, in this country, but also, again, to equip them with the talent and the tools to call out all the evils that they were facing. And so that's the legacy and really Mm. the gap, the the, the role that these institutions have played, not just serving as a space to uh, advance individual economic and political pursuits for African-Americans, but to collectively um, Mm -hmm. uh, provide a space uh, that would nurture, um, that would embolden, that would empower Black youth, particularly in a country uh, that often thought that that was not capable or, or that should not uh, should, that should not be. So um, mm. that's what HBCUs have really done um, since their inception. Wow. It's powerful. Thank you so much, Dr. Favors. As you were just talking about that, I was I literally w- was thinking of just two thoughts came to mind. One is uh, within the context of Christian faith, this idea that the truth will set us free. And certainly it's referring to the capital T truth, the divine, but these the smaller truths, right, and knowledge and understanding and the importance of it. And then the other piece I thought about was, you know, people who wear these T-shirts that say, you know, watch out, you know, educated black man, educated black man, uh-huh. kind of, right. kind of the, the danger, so to speak, or the intimidation uh, in a white supremacist context of a well-educated, self-loving Black mind. Right. And in many ways, that is what the HBCU legacy represents. One of the things that I found fascinating about your book is that when people talk about HBCUs, uh, oftentimes they're thinking about just a handful of schools. And they're missing that there are dozens of historically Black colleges and universities. And they're thinking about, you know, your Howard, your Hamptons, your Spelman's, your Morehouse's, et cetera. 
But I really enjoy the, your selection process in mm. this particular book. I really enjoy the fact that you went in many ways, in many ways to the, you know, in some parts of the very deep South. Mm-hmm. Um, and you told the story of historically black colleges um, that we don't often hear about. Can you talk to me a little bit about more about that selection process and identifying the schools that you decided to dig into? Well, first, I want to go back to your, your point about education and being dangerous, um, because, again, that's one of the, the great fears that a number of white Americans had about these institutions, that perhaps they were um, emboldening and enlightening African-Americans far too much. Uh, and, and Du Bois has this great quote, W.E.B. Du Bois has a great quote from his classic study entitled The Souls of Black Folk, where he says education among all kinds of men always has had and always will have an element of danger, of dissatisfaction and discontent. Right. Yes. And, and so um, and so, in fact, Du Bois probably could have been the, the author of that shirt, Danger, right, Educated Black Man, Danger, Educated Black Woman, because he understood <laughs> and knew that, again, when you enlighten someone, you do begin to uh, cause that person to, to raise questions about society around them and, mm-hmm, and how that mm-hmm. society can can be improved. Uh, and, and that's exactly what's going on within these spaces. So um, to your other question about how these these stories came together. Um, as you said, there's over 101 historically black colleges and universities today. And that number has has grown and at times it has shrunk. Um, you know, many of these institutions have, have been under serious duress economically and have been forced mm-hmm. to, to close their doors uh, as of yes. late. Um, and so I was really kind of careful about how I went about constructing this story and, and try, trying to tell a broad narrative of, of these institutions. And I always get pushback from a lot of folks who I speak to about the book. You know, people, you know, HBCUs, if you're not familiar with it, we, we're, we're friendly and we're also competitive. Right. And so yeah. uh, so for every Hampton, you have your Howard. Right. You know, for every uh, uh, Spelman, you have your Bennett College. And so there are a lot of folks who say, well, you know, this is good. But why did you talk about my school? Right. Why did you talk about Florida and m Right. You know, you should have talked about Virginia Union. And the truth right. is, you know, when you're putting the book together and you're trying to tell a very detailed story, you just can't tell all of them. Um, but I knew I wanted to begin at the very beginning. And Cheney State University, also known as the Institute for Colored Youth, founded in 1837, was just a very, very powerful space for me to begin. Uh, and in fact, I opened up the book with the story of Octavius Caddo, um, who was both an alumnus of yeah. the Institute for Colored Youth. Uh, he went on to teach at the Institute for Colored Youth. And then he's assassinated in the streets of Philadelphia mm-hmm. uh, because of the role that not only he, but the students of the Institute for Colored Youth had played in helping to bring about the 15th Amendment, which again gave African-American men uh, the right to vote. And so again, from the very outset, HBCUs are identified as a threat, a threat to the white establishment, a threat to the white power structure um, because of what they're teaching and exposing these students to. Um, But from there, uh, I went on to talk about the legacy of Tougaloo. Um, In fact, the book really sort of began as a a major extension of of my dissertation, um, Mm. um, which was a comparative study of Jackson State and Tougaloo College, both located uh, in Mississippi. Uh, And so um, Tougaloo is, is a private institution uh, located right outside of Jackson. And of course, Jackson State is the flagship mm-hmm. HBCU of the state of right. Mississippi. Uh, and so I, I want to tell the story of Tougaloo uh, in the midst of the what Rayford Logan, a former historian at Howard University, referred to as the nadir, the lowest point, right? So slavery ends in 1865 and we move into the Reconstruction mm-hmm. period and African-Americans are literally at war. Um, there's widespread, widespread epidemic racial violence exploding um, throughout the South. Lynching is, has become epidemic. Uh, and it's even more important during this particular period to establish uh, a shelter in a time of storm. And so Tougaloo becomes, which is literally founded on, on a former plantation, um, uh, literally becomes a space yeah. to educate Black youth uh, in the state of Mississippi. Uh, and so I want to tell that story of these institutions coming into being in the during this low point of, of racial violence and the, mm-hmm. crystal, the crystallization of, of Jim Crow and white supremacy in our society. And from there, I moved on um, to tell the story of Bennett. Bennett, interestingly yeah. enough, uh, uh, it, actually, that chapter was supposed to be a chapter on Howard University, um, but I'll never, oh. for, I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, it was mm-hmm. the last 
unfinished, unwritten chapter um, that I had going into my second um, uh, fellowship at Duke University in 2013. And one of my uh, colleagues who happened to also be on fellowship at Duke at the time, she was teaching at Bennett and she and I were having lunch. And she says, you know, everybody talks about Howard. Nobody ever talks about Bennett. And I said, you mm. know what? I said, you're right. And, I, and and again, because that chapter was not yet written, I said, this would be a wonderful opportunity to insert the story of one of t- only two yeah. institutions in the United States of America dedicated um, to educating uh, African-American women as a single sex yes. institution. Of course, the other one being Spelman College mm-hmm. um, here in Atlanta. And so uh, and that was probably one of the most important decisions that I made, including Bennett's story. Um, after that. After the Bennett chapter, I include the story of three state institutions in the Deep South, Jackson State University, Alabama State University, and Southern University. And the main reason why I focus on those institutions is because I wanted to to deal with this issue of how black colleges still carved out space for social and political expression in the midst of the 30s and 40s and 50s. And one of the things that Mm -hmm. I found is that even at these state institutions, this was an extremely radical moment in African-American history. We're, we're going in between World War One and this period of the new Negro of the early of the early 20th century into to World War Two. And these institutions are just ripe with with radicalism and militancy. You see students expressing their angst right. and frustrations with white supremacy in the pages of the student newspapers. You see them joining uh, the NAACP. You see them creating uh, new organizations like the Student Negro Youth Congress. Um, and so black colleges, even though they're under the thumb and under the control of white state legislators, white racist yeah. state legislators, they're mm-hmm. still carving out space for very important expression, which ultimately becomes the, the, the catalyst and the ground work for what's going to become the the modern civil rights movement. HBCUs are an anchor of of that particular moment. And in fact, the sit-ins, which really serves as the major catalyst for direct action protests in the uh, the civil rights movement, begin uh, at my alma mater, North Carolina A&T State University. But on February 1st, 1960, the sit-ins are launched. But it's how the sit-ins end up proliferating and, and connecting uh, within this network of HBCUs, all of these Black college students begin to engage in that protest. And, and a lot of it is coming out of these state institutions. And then I wrap up with the story of, of my alma mater, North Carolina A&T. And a lot of folks <laughs> ripped me about that, saying, oh, you you talked about A&T because you, you're an alumnus of it. But one of the main reasons why <laughs> I want to focus on that is that one of the important scholars of of that uh, era, uh, uh, Bill Chafe, wrote a classic study entitled uh, Civilities and Civil Rights. And in that book, he highlights and talks about the legacy of protests out of Greensboro. And he states, and I think this is very accurate, he states that Greensboro, North Carolina, was the center of the Black Power movement uh, in the South. Uh, in the midst of the late 1960s and early 1970s. And one of the main reasons for that was because of the presence of North Carolina A&T. And so I knew if I wanted to tell the story of the Black Power Movement, I wanted to to tell a story of an institution that played an extremely critical role in, in helping to bring that movement uh, about. Uh, and then I wrap up the book with the epilogue that looks at uh, where HBCUs have gone from the late 70s into uh, even to, to current day. And so that, that's, that was my methodology and my approach and, and how I really kind of brought all these institutions together. As I mentioned before, there are over 101 of these institutions. Every last one of yeah, them wow. have extremely powerful and compelling stories that need mm-hmm. to be told, that need to be celebrated, that need to uh, be gleaned from as we continue in, in our process of trying to become knowledgeable about why these institutions have been so vital to the Black experience in this country. Yes, Doctor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just... um. My goodness, the, the, to hear the intentionality, you know, and even the discernment that you used in, in selecting oh. the colleges is so powerful. Um, you talk about Bennett and how you chose Bennett instead of, you know, Spelman and then, you know, Howard. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it was actually you were going to go with Howard <laughs> and then you went with Bennett, yeah. um, uh, which is the one of two uh, HBCUs that educates women exclusively. I just yeah, just thank you for breaking that down and sharing that with us when you're when you mentioned. Um, you, you shared a whole lot, but hearing just um, how these uh, institutions were really revolutionary, right, in um, educating um, Black folks exclusively and doing so, um, I guess you could say under the uh, uh, purview or watchful eye, if you will, of um, 
of those who are white power structures, right? And those who are right. in power and um, seeking to suppress us in, in just about any way possible. I couldn't help but think about um, another uh, very powerful institution within our community, um, and that is the Black church. And I just hear some echoes um, between both the HBCU um, history and um, the Black church. And I'm wondering if you could talk to our sisters at the table about the relationship between um, Black churches and HBCUs. That they are inextricably linked, right? I mean, again, mm-hmm. you look at, at Morehouse College is literally founded in the basement of a church, Right. Right. Uh, um, right. So uh, many of these institutes. So black colleges are, are founded in 1837, um, really with the express purpose of filling two very pressing and very important vocations. Um, the one is one is teaching. Uh, right. Equipping young black folks to serve as as, as teachers, um, but also as ministers. Right. And, and so many of the, the ministers that emerge from particularly in the Reconstruction era moving forward, many mm-hmm. of them have been trained within these institutions. As I mentioned earlier, many of these institutions were founded by yes. by, by black churches. Right. Wilberforce yes. uh, is, is, is a product of the AME Church. Um, yes. uh, again, the American Missionary Association, the AMA, played a critical mm-hmm. role. Uh, in the founding of of Fisk, of Talladega, of Tougaloo, mm-hmm. I mean, of of numerous HBCUs in the Deep South, and so this idea of 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 black morality, um, but mm-hmm. also um, infusing these spaces um, with 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 a uh, an ethos, a religious ethos that that empowered black youth. Uh, was so critical to what these churches were trying uh, to achieve, right? Livingstone College in South Salisbury, North Carolina, founded by the AME Zion Church. And so there's a deep interconnected um, relationship between the Black right. church uh, and, and, the, uh, and, the, uh, and Black colleges. And so, uh, you know, again, HBCUs, are, they also served as seminaries, right? They're training ministers. Yes. Um, Howard University had one of the most powerful seminaries uh, in the country. Another school that I actually wanted to talk about uh, in the book, uh, again, I, I couldn't tell the story of all of them, but mm-hmm. this story certainly deserves greater attention. Uh, and that is the story of Virginia, Un- Virginia Union University. Yes, yes. Virginia yes. Union yes. One of the most important black seminaries in the country. Um, mm-hmm. They were churning. They were, and again, they're not just churning out ministers, but they're churning out conscientious, politically minded, um, oh. conscious uh, uh, um, young African Americans who go into these into these uh, uh, um, uh, black communities and they create spaces for political and social and economic expression. And so, um, you know, that that's part of the legacy of, of these institutions. And so you can't speak about HBCUs and not talk about the legacy of Black churches. However, I think what we have done, um, and perhaps erroneously done, uh, is that we tend to talk a lot about the legacy of the Black church. Um, we tend to study a lot about the legacy of Come the Black on. church. Uh, and that's critically important that we do. But we've typically also ignored the space and the importance of, of Black colleges. And I, and I like to think and mm. hope that, that that my book, has one of the reasons why it's been celebrated is that it's filled uh, a void of, of, of talking about how these institutions served as a shelter in the time of storm and how... Um, Black folks interpreted this as as a space where they could breathe free spiritually, um, but mm-hmm. also breathe free um, socially and politically as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Favors, I am so uh, excited about already learning so much listening to you. We're going to take a break right now. And I've got a question already buttoned in my mind when we come <laughs> Hey, y'all. Now, you know, we take the Bible seriously here at Truth's Table. Did you know that Dwell Audio Bible app is a preferred audio Bible for people who want to get in the Word and stay in the Word? With several inspiring voices, Bible translations, and original background music, you're going to love listening to Scripture. They have listening plans that help you to start a daily habit of engaging with God through one of Dwell's many Bible listening plans. They even have a sleep timer so you and your family can fall asleep to your favorite books and stories of the Bible without losing your spot or draining your battery. End your day with God's word in your ears and on your heart. 
you can make Dwell your very own. In the For You section, you can see your favorites, your plans, your downloads, your recent listens, and more. Dwell is for you. Truth Table listeners can get started with Dwell by going to dwellapp.io slash truthstable to get 10% off of a yearly subscription or 33% off of Dwell for life, y'all, for life. 33% off means that you'll save $50. So make sure you visit dwellapp.io slash truthstable to commit to scripture for the rest of the year and for your life. See, you know what I'm grateful for? Girl, what you grateful for? I am grateful for our Patreon supporters, girl. Oh, for sure. For sure. We could not do the work of Truth Table without our Patreon supporters. Tell so the we, truth. We want to thank y'all because without your dollars, we wouldn't be able to pay our producers. Our now video editor, because y'all know you can get some video content from Truth Table now when we try to step it up. Hello, Patreon people. I mean, come on. And we couldn't pay our teachers that come and teach our um, Black women discipleship group. So we want to thank y'all for being Patreon supporters. So many things we're able to do because you decided to partner with us. And we just want to thank you, thank you, thank you for rolling with us since the beginning. And invite you all that are listening at the table or standing room only to come on and participate in the work that we're doing by becoming a Patreon sponsor. Yes, for as little as $5 a month. That is less than Starbucks coffee. It's less than DoorDash. It's less than Uber Eats. Come on now. You can support. We know about these things personally. We know about these things. COVID-19, COVID-19. We're speaking from a personal place. Yes, yes, yes. Testify. (laughs) So for as little as $5 a month, y'all can support the work of Truth Table and just keep this table going. Sustain our work. This is a labor of love and we are so grateful to be at this table. So our standing room section folk, come on and support us. Our sisters at the table, come on and support our work at patreon.com slash truth's table. So we're back at Truth's Table with Dr. Jelani Favors. And Dr. Favors, I have a question for you. I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about certainly uh, kind of what you just shared with Akimini around uh, the Black church influence on many HBCUs. And also we're, we're well aware, right, of the, the white missionary societies, right? And um, a number of, of white uh, clergy members who funded or led or were the board for a number of, you know, HBCUs that I can think of right now, um, and the ways in which they were stymied or stagnated and had to develop kind of a subversive activism under the leadership of of white clergy members. And I'm wondering if you came across any of those dynamics in your study, This this um, these spaces that are shaped to educate African-Americans, but to turn them into the right type of Negro, so to speak, um, <laughs> and, and the ways in which that was resisted. Oh, without question. And, and I think that's the the hallmark of and and one of the enduring stories that I try to, to bring out uh, in my book. I talk about this idea of of a second curriculum um, is that, yes, African-American colleges are teaching classes on on religion. Um, they're teaching classes on on history and Greek and Latin and, and mathematics and all of the traditional disciplines, which were taught at a number of predominantly white institutions uh, as well. But with the second curriculum, uh, and this is what I emphasize throughout the book, is that we see another element emerging within these spaces, and that is emphasis on three very important concepts. The first one is race consciousness. The second one is idealism. Uh, and by idealism, I mean one of the, the two of the concepts that emerge over and over again in the black student newspapers that that I uh, that I visited as I was putting putting together this re- putting together this research were the concepts of democracy and citizenship. Like these students were always talking about democracy and citizenship. Mm. Uh, and, and what was ironic about that is that democracy and citizenship were two of the things that black folks were being denied on a daily basis. But yet, yep. students yep. Are, are essentially being drilled. Uh, in mm. these ideas. And then the third one is this idea of cultural nationalism. Uh, and, and when I say cultural nationalism, nationalism, I mean that these institutions were producing generations of race men and race women who saw themselves as responsible for preserving and uplifting black institutions and black spaces and black businesses. Um, and so with, with that second curriculum, 
We also see the importance of space, right? Uh, as I refer to it in my book, sort of interstitial space, like a space within a space, is that, yes, these institutions might be under the control of uh, of racist white state legislators. Yes, they may be under the influence even of um, racist white clergy members who perceive that Black education should only be given out in a certain way. But when a Black educator goes into her classroom or goes into his classroom and closes that door, that space becomes a separate entity where the freedom dreams of young black men and black women can thrive. They can talk about anything that they want to talk about. Uh, And and so, yes, there is a heavy element of that, but you also see the importance of black folks pushing back against that. One of my favorite voices on this subject is, is Ann Moody. Uh, Ann Moody was a mm-hmm. former activist at Tougaloo College in the <laughs> 1960s. Um, and in her classic study, her memoirs, she talks about the idea that, look, you know, since she had been involved in the movement, right, she had seen, you know, black folks being killed and, and black businesses being destroyed and black homes being firebombed, black churches being firebombed. Uh, and, uh, and And she said, look, you know what? We have to be serving two gods here, right? You know, because you and we, you and I can't be praying, right, to Come the on. same God. And she, she literally right. says that look, that there, there has to be, you know, two gods or, mm-hmm. or, or no God at all, right? She even mm-hmm. goes on to mm-hmm. suggest that, right? And mm-hmm. so she's calling out the hypocrisy mm-hmm. of, of of the white church, and that would become a a very important hallmark of. Uh, of the the modern civil rights movement, of course, Martin Luther King yes. Jr. did the very same thing uh, in his letter from a Birmingham jail, spending a yes. lot of time within that within that book, um, dealing with the hypocrisies of both both white ministers as well as black ministers, um, but specifically targeting and calling out white ministers um, for for upholding the ideals of white supremacy, but at the same time talking about this message of, of Christian love and brotherhood, and and I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that that black colleges and black spaces like HBCUs have done the best is that they've dealt with the uh, enduring paradox and the enduring hypocrisy found within American society. And sadly, that also exists within the, within the church as well. And so, uh, yes. and, and that raises all kinds of, that's a whole nother podcast, right? Okay. Uh, I'm dealing with uh, uh, how the, the church has or has not dealt with that hypocrisy and what that has meant for uh for parishioners of all uh, of all mm-hmm. of all faiths as well as all uh, all uh, racial backgrounds right 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 my goodness that you know what you're right that that's another podcast because I must I was definitely going to walk down that rabbit trail so I thank you <laughs> because it really is it, it, and you see a lot of people are really suffering behind that hypocrisy right now right, right. Uh, with right. everything that we we see going on in our current climate I'm you know I I want to shift gears for a, a, a moment Dr. Favors you know I am I am a book nerd in that I read introductions of books <laughs> and so I'm sure the author appreciates that um, other people think okay it's weird whatever (laughs) but I do read book introductions Mm -hmm. and what I found so fascinating about your introduction well there's several things but but really what really jumped out at me uh was the story or the vignette that you shared of Harry Belafonte um who was speaking you know to this next generation of of uh of students right who are uh you know uh Civil, civically engaged activists, um, and down for the cause, right? But, but there was this um, subtext, or I, I wouldn't even say a subtext. It was actually explicitly stated. This intergenerational um, disconnection uh, is the way that I would uh, describe it. And there was um, his own uh, self reflection upon, uh, or. Uh, um, uh, his own rebuke, I would say, to his own generation. Like, how come our, how come this next generation, how come they can't find us? Where are we at? You know, in this, like, what, what are we doing? Why, why are we so busy, you know, that we can't reach back, you know, and, and teach and learn um, and, and, and um, mentor, you know, these students. And so I'm curious about if you can speak to the Intergen- the need for intergenerational collaboration. Why is it not there in the ways that maybe it ought to be or the ways that we hope that it would be? And what can be done to maybe bridge uh, that gap? 
Right. Absolutely. And so for just very quickly for your listeners, um, just oh, yes, a, a little bit more detail about that particular moment. This is the 60th anniversary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, yes. SNCC, which is what that acronym, acronym um, 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 ultimately translates into, um, was born out of the Black sit-ins that emerged out of HBCUs uh, mm-hmm. in early 1960. And Overwhelmingly, the majority of leadership of, of SNCC and the majority of the members of SNCC were products of HBCUs. They were students at HBCUs who had led uh, at their respective campuses th- these sit-in movements, and so uh, and it became the most powerful organization of, of the six of the nineteen sixties, one of the most influential organizations yes. of the nineteen sixties. And so, at their sixtieth anniversary in Raleigh, is where this moment um, really occurred, and uh, it was a very powerful learning mo- moment, I think, for all of yes. us because I think what what uh, Harry Belafonte was saying or, or translating is that, look, we have to stop resting on our laurels. And, and yes, there, there was a number of because the, the tone and tenor of the, the conference was really about talking about what had been done. Right. And I think that what Belafonte was trying to remind us is that, look, you know, we're in the midst of continuing to see anti-Black uh, uh, racist violence against African-Americans. We've seen uh, uh, uh industrial prison complex, which is continuing yes, to lock yes. up Black and brown people. Um, mm-hmm. We continue to see voter suppression and, and environmental yes. racism. What about the issues of today and how do we deal with these issues today? And I think yes. that to your point and to your question, and this kind of jumps into, you talk about the introduction, I want to move to the epilogue. <laughs> Right, the epilogue ahead, of the book. Go ahead, take us there. The, conclu- <laughs> <laughs> the conclusion of the book talks about the corruption of the Come HBCU on. space and and how mm. that space has mm-hmm. has really been transformed and changed uh, on, for a, a variety of different reasons. But I would extend that argument to suggest that. Uh, it's not just the corruption of the HBCU space, but I think it's the corruption of black institutions in general. The black church has also been transformed and changed in its its intent and its purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You can't divorce the black experience and the black struggle from the narrative of the black church because they're one in the same. The black church is born out of the black struggle, literally, right? Uh, And so black folks walk out and say, we're going to carve out and create our own space because of the racism that we're experiencing within white churches. And so, uh, and and the same sentiment applies to what's going on uh, within uh, uh, black universities and black colleges. Again, they're carving out space to address Mm -hmm. these issues. But what we see moving forward into the 70s and 80s, 80s, we see a rise of hypercapitalism. Uh, we see a rise of, of this idea and intention of the, the growing black middle class. And many of them began to stray away from the concerns of the black masses. Uh, and, and so, you know, if, if we're going to recapture that energy, if we're going to um, uh, revisit these concepts and make them applicable to some of the struggles that we're still clearly seeing playing out before us, I think we have to reevaluate the purpose and the intent of these spaces, of these institutions that were created to serve the black masses as well as the black elite. Right. And and so, um, you know, we can't simply have colleges that are expressing interest in the STEM fields and becoming corporate breeding grounds. They have to answer the question and deal with the question. How do we address and remedy problems afflicting the black masses in terms of social, political and economic issues? And I think that's the same pressing question that the black church has to ask itself. How do we speak specifically to addressing not just the spiritual welfare of our parishioners, Mm -hmm. but in the long tradition of the black church, also speaking to the social, political and economic issues that have defined their lives and in some ways have crippled their ability um, to survive within the society? And so. So um, there, there's been a corruption, I think, of HBCU spaces. And I also, also think there's been a corruption of, of the black church as well. And that's something that, again, we have to, to be bold enough and courageous, courageous enough to, to revisit if indeed we're going to make these spaces viable um, for advancing the freedom dreams of black folks in this country. Wow. You know, I think. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Favors, you walk down that street. OK, <laughs> let's go. Let's Let's go. Go. You're you're I'm like, I'm literally writing about some interventions that we need to make in the black church for black people in in the Absolutely. midst of what we're going through. We are we are facing a lot. My goodness. Right. Yeah, as has been as has been the story, right? On this, right. Yes. On this land. Yes. 
And um, but yeah, but but needing to needing to rise to the occasion. And I think to the point that you're just that you were just highlighting, Dr. Favors, this um, the seduction of of capitalism and greed and the ways in which it has impacted um, people's perception, perception of historically black colleges and universities. I mean, as someone who's attended mm. to and taught at one, um, and they're deeply connected within my family story, the amount of African-Americans who have told me that, uh, Afri- that HBCUs are not a wise choice. Uh, how will you be able to relate to white people? How would you, I'm like, what is happening? Uh, and, 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 and really this very, um, deep seated ignorance, uh, in which they don't understand the history and really the impact today about how many of our PhDs, MDs, DD, DDSs around the country yes. are still coming out of historically black colleges and universities right now. So to your point, I think there is something seductive, uh, this belief that if it is not white, it's not right. And I think that impact is not only people's um views about what colleges and universities they apply to or attend, but also their perception of theology. So there's a parallel, right, uh, between those two dynamics. I wanted to draw your attention, though, because I just I, I couldn't help but to do it as someone who is also an all-girls school graduate to this chapter about Bennett College and um, the ways in which these Black women were being developed to both use their voices and to use their writing uh, just jumped out to me so much. And storytelling there is just wonderful. You're a true storyteller historian. Um, can you talk just a little bit about um, kind of the, the legacy of, of Bennett shaping shaping Black women to use their voice and the, and the pen? So, so I'll begin where that chapter begins. Um, I was on fellowship at Duke in, in 2013. Uh, as I said before, originally that chapter was supposed to be on Howard University. Um, but my, my good friend and colleague uh, encouraged me to take a look at Bennett. And I said, you know what, L- let me let me go down this road and and, and fill in this gap, fill in this this, this void. Uh, and as I began to go through the, the Bennett student newspapers, I ran across the story of a woman by the name of Hattie Bailey. Uh, and, and Hattie Bailey was a student at Bennett College in, in the late 1930s. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to a, a shot in the dark. I'm going to see if I can't find Hattie Bailey and interview her because oral, you know, I'm also trained as an oral historian or interview or uh, interviews are a large part of my book and my research. Wow. Uh, mm. and, and so I said, you know what, this, let me see if I can find her and talk to her. And sure enough, I got in contact with the Bennett Alumni Foundation and they were able to help me track down Hattie Bailey, who was living in Philadelphia at the time. And I picked up the phone, I called her, and I told her who I was and, and what project I was doing. And, I, and again, wow. this is this is represented in, in that chapter. I tell the story of this in this chat in that chapter. But the first one of the first things that Hattie Bailey said to me, she was in her late nineties then, but still very cognizant and still able, very lucid, right to to remember her Bennett experience. And the first thing mm-hmm. she said to me was that I learned how to speak at Bennett. Right. Wow. And, and I was just I mean, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. Right. Because mm-hmm. what she what she was saying clearly for your listeners, and, and I'm sure this comes across. She didn't come to, to Bennett not knowing how to verbally open right. up her mouth. Right. But what she's saying is that that she what she found a, 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 an environment that empowered her, that strengthened her that connected her voice with the voice of the masses. And she learned to, to, uh, uh, to grow and, and to thrive within that space. And then it goes on as the, the, the newspaper, the Bennett Banner um, documents, you know, she, she, she learned how to speak, but she also went on to become president of the Student uh, Government Association. And in doing so, attended a conference in Philadelphia uh, in the ni- late 1930s, the National Negro Congress was meeting. And it's there that she learned about all these radical ideas, right? The sort of interconnected mm-hmm. nature of, of the black struggle and what people, not just in this country, black folks in this country were dealing with, but people across the globe, what they were dealing with as it related to white supremacy. And then she brings those ideas back to Bennett, right? And so she begins to, you know, tell her, apprise her fellow Bennett Bells about what the conference was going on at the conference and the ideas that she was exposed to. Uh, and, And therein lies the legacy 
of HBCUs, these these paths the, are, are, of intellectual inquiry uh, and, and growth are carved out where Black women can cannot just be shaped by the faculty and the administrators who they're coming into contact with, but also they could be shaped by each other. Right. You know, the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron. Right. And that's what we see within this environment are our young black students who are sharpening each other, making each other better, helping other black students to find their voices. And the Bennett chapter um, was really one of my favorite chapters. It actually went on to win uh, uh, the RDW Connor Award for the North Carolina Historical Review was as the best article published in 2019. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I was really fortunate to, that, that, to really include that chapter because it centers the legacy of black women in the midst of one of the most radical periods of the 20th century. This is a period known as the new Negro era. So at the same time, you see this elevation of race consciousness and political activism in the 1930s. You see that beginning to uh, develop on black college campuses and black students are using their voices to speak to this emerging moment. And, and I mean, black college women at Bennett had their own radio show, which I talked about in, in, in that chapter. That was unheard of. Right, to have right. black women in the deep south in North Carolina have their own radio show. And on this radio show, they're talking about black history. They're talking about why black lives matter, right? Because uh, ultimately it's going to, that, that radio show is going to take place in the midst of World War II. And so you have black veterans who are going to serve, but at the same time, you still have lynching and racism and Jim Crow going on in America. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they're using this platform and this space to articulate the freedom dreams of black people. And so, um, you know, it, it was just an extremely, um, out of all of my, my chapters that I put together um, in that book, I, I really, I learned so much and, and I, I appreciated um, the impact and the legacy of the women of Bennett who were really major forerunners of, of, of the yes. black freedom struggle that would emerge in the 1960s. They launched a boycott of, of the downtown Greensboro theaters. I mean, these were some bad sisters, man, you know? And so, uh, and again, that space yeah. made them as Hattie Bailey said, I found my voice at, mm. at Bennett. And, and so when you think about the legacy of black institutions, empowering, um, the yes. people that they serve, right? I mean, HBCUs were doing that, and, and Bennett did that for Hattie Bailey in the same way that it had done and, and mm-hmm. continues to do for generations of, of Black women yeah. who are making their way into these spaces. Well, Doctor Fears, you know, it's it, it's just it's just the truth that these spaces are incubators. They Absolutely. are yes. um, they are you know cultivated communities uh, with the goal of of empowering, developing, shaping, correcting. <laughs> You know, pruning, uh, staring, uh, you know, staring on, and provoking the very best um, that can possibly be pulled out of the individuals that attend these spaces, uh, despite the, you know, obviously they're imperfect of spaces. Um, and I, I would like to think of when I think about this history, particularly of the Bennett Bells, is kind of our work here at Truth's Table, which you know highlights the voices of three black women who unapologetically talk about the fact that. Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter to God. Um, and so really following in that particular legacy and standing on the shoulders of, of these just tremendous women that, and I, I appreciate you so much, Dr. Fabers, for yes. um, as a Black man for honoring yes. uh, Black collegiate women in this way. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, speaking truth to power, right, is, is what we're talking about. And, and sure. Black students, Black women, Black young Black men, um, they found their voices and they were bold enough um, to, to engage in the type of action that was dangerous. Right? Let's be very clear about this. this, this mm, these were yes. dangerous expressions in the 1930s for a black woman to take to the airwaves, to take to the student newspapers, to take to the streets of Greensboro and to, to look Jim Crow square in the eye and say that you are inconsistent with the principles of our Constitution. You're inconsistent with the principles of of, of the Christianity that, that we embrace. Right. In fact, that that chapter actually ends in the church. There were a group of uh, that chapter on Bennett of of black women who attended a a white congregation in the city of Greensboro. And they were told that they had to sit in a segregated space. And so they 
boldly and defiantly left the church in protest. Right. And so, again, this kind of goes back to the other point that we were uh, dealing with is that, you know, we as as, as as the black church, the church mm-hmm. in general, we have mm-hmm. to deal with these contradictions. We have yes. to deal with this hypocrisy uh, and, mm-hmm. and we have to, to address it if we're going to save this American experiment, which is clearly under threat, um, oh, as, yes. even as we speak. And, and, and as, I, as I tell folks, white supremacy is a cancer and, and it yes, has it been eating at the, the body politic uh, for mm. over 400 plus years. And until we uh-huh. summon the type of, of energy and the type of type of courageousness that the students at Bennett uh, uh, were able to, to channel uh, in the 1930s in the same way in which we see young black folks taking to the streets, declaring that black lives, black lives matter today. Mm-hmm. We, right. we have to boldly speak truth to power if we're going to uh, salvage um, this country of ours. And, and, and I mm-hmm. think that HBCUs, along with uh, the church, um, can play a critical role in shaping that in the same way in which they did in, in years prior. Mm, my goodness. My hands lifted up, Dr. Faith. <laughs> you're preaching a word. Um, <laughs> you know, I, you know, as a historian, of course, you have given us so much um, just oral history. And when you said that you're trained as an um, oral historian, I was like, clearly, <laughs> me and Christina were texting like, clearly, he knows this stuff. Like, this is phenomenal. We are, we are really enjoying our conversation. Um, and uh, I know you're, you're a historian. You, you talk about the past and what's happening. But I'm going to ask you to um, foretell for us. I would love for you to um, vision cast or even just foretell what is, we'll talk about even just the present of HBCUs. You alluded to just the corruption, right? Your epilogue and talking about the corruption of HBCUs. I'd love for you to unpack that a little little bit for our sisters at the table and then talk to us about what you see as the future um, of HBCUs in your mind's eye. Uh, What are your hopes? What do you want to see? Um, Yeah, just talk to us about what you see. What's the present, but then what what do you see going forward? Well, you know, I, I, I believe... Uh, if if I'm not incorrect, it, it may have been William Faulkner who said that the past is prologue. Come on, uh, yep. <laughs> and, the, and the prologue is the past, right? And, okay. and so, um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the, the social uh, and political issues that we see with us today, um, you know, these issues have been around for years, oh, right? yes. for, for years. Um, but yet, we're still talking about voter suppression. We're still mm. talking about. Uh, the new Jim Crow 2.0, which yeah. which is looking a lot like Jim Crow 1.0. Come on, uh, come and, on. and so, you know, these issues are, are still with us. And so we're thankful for the legacy of, of, of Black activism that emerged out of these institutions, which, which pulled us slightly closer to inclusion, which pulled us slightly closer um, to the idea of, of, of forming a more just and equitable society. But God knows we have so much further to go. Uh, um, this fight is still clearly and apparently um, with us. And so mm. I think that raises the question about, you know, what can these institutions do um, to continue to provide us with the type of vision, uh, the type of, uh, of solutions um, to address these issues? And, 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 and this kind of this gets beyond the HBCU world now. Right. And we're talking about predominantly white institutions. We're talking about white churches. We're talking about um, spaces um, that nurture uh, and educate uh, uh, young white Americans and other races as well, right? Mm -hmm. What are they doing to address our worst issues, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, The problems that still plague us. And if they're not equipping young people with the ability to to intellectually uh, uh, diagnose and to, to dissect um, these pressing issues, then they're simply a part of the problem, right? And, and, and I think that's been the legacy of many of these institutions since their inception. Let's be very clear. White supremacy was, was bolstered and in many ways founded out of the white academy, right? You know, and, and so these spaces have always been radically different, right? You know, so at the same yeah. time, you have young white kids who are studying why black folks are inferior within mm. predominantly white institutions. Black colleges are setting up a space that has a very powerful counter narrative, right? Which affirms black identity. Uh, and so I think moving forward, we have to revisit um, 
what these institutions are doing uh, within the lives of, of, of the body politic and how they are informing our social and political consciousness uh, and, and, and be willing to, to address that, but also be willing to, to remedy that. Um, you know, as someone who teaches uh, at an at institution uh, in Atlanta, we are Clayton State University is a predominantly black uh, institution, but yet it is control. It's not historically black, but it's a predominantly black institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet it's controlled um, largely by by a, a white administration. Right. And these are things that we have been trying to, to discuss and, and talk about how we address that moving forward um, to create a more inclusive and a more tolerant environment for our students and for the black faculty who uh, who, who teach there. Uh, and the same thing could be said more broadly speaking at predominantly white institutions where you have black faculty who are exposed to very extremely hostile and racist environments and black students who are exposed to extremely hostile and racist environments. In fact, in the last two, three years alone, we've seen an uptick of, of a number of young black folks saying, look, you know, in the midst of these intensified racial hostilities, maybe I need to think about going to an HBCU. Right. That's and so right. therefore, we've yep. seen a, a slight increase yes. in the enrollment of HBCUs over this time and over this period. And so, you know, again, I, we talk about speaking truth to power. And I think that moving forward, um, we have to have courage to have hard conversations about who we are as a nation, about how we became this way uh, and how these ideas and concepts still persist uh, and how in the same way we have been yelling and screaming Black Lives Matter and say her name and say his name and and, and get your knee off our neck. These are the same mm-hmm. chants, the same concerns, the same problems that our ancestors dealt with. Uh, and so... It's very clear uh, that these social and political issues still um, dominate our lives and, and and our institutions have to be solutions to that. Um, to that end, I think that they also need to um, do a full evaluation of the type of curriculum that they are offering or not offering. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my favorite people that I uncovered in in my historical research was a professor by the name of Rodney Higgins, who was the founder of the political science department at Southern University in the 1940s. And he talked about the idea how the university has to has to position itself um, to serve as a solution to these social ills. But he also talked about how it was a humanities and the social sciences that best equipped us with the ability to empower our students um, to serve as cultural and social and political change agents. And so, you know, in this this moment where we see a lot of focus on STEM, uh, in this moment where we see a lot of focus on on, on corporate America and hypercapitalization, uh, you know, we need to understand the power of of the human or the, the realities of the human condition and how the humanities and social sciences have often equipped us with the best solutions to addressing that. And that's something that I would love to see moving forward. In fact, I just spoke at Prayer View A and M a few months ago, uh, and they literally just uh, christened um, the the Ruth Simmons. Um, Center for Race and Social Justice uh, uh, on the campus of Prairie View. And, and I, I dare say that that every HBCU should have their own centers for race and social justice. Every yes, HBCU yes, needs to yes. revisit this idea of becoming laboratories um, where mm. we can produce students who are equipped with the intellectual tools to address the problems that are still plaguing us. And, th- and let, me, let me rephrase that. Not just every HBCU, but institutions in general Yes. Need to become more accountable about how they're either either you're propping up and and, and strengthening white supremacy or you're deconstructing it, right? And, mm-hmm. the, and we, we have to draw that line, right? The, we spend so much time talking about Republicans and Democrats, you know. At, at this at this stage in the game, I'm I'm at this point, I'm really convinced there are only two camps: either you're racist or you're anti-racist. Come on. Right? And, and this, this is echoing the, the words, arguments of my, my good friend, Ibram Kendi, and what he's argued in his book, um, How to Be Anti-Racist. And, and I agree. And I think that's where we are in, in this country, is that we have to come and, and have a full uh, um, um, uh, accountability uh, and a full inv- take full inventory of who we are and how these ideas persist throughout our institutions, how they persist throughout even our own individual pursuits and our own individual yes. uh, ways of looking at things. Uh, and then we have to be willing to take that scalpel out and to, 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 to go to work and do some surgery on ourselves and on our nation, on the institutions that serve us. 
Well, Dr. Favors, thank you so much. I w- I'm sitting here thinking about kind of some of the points that you lifted up about the, the role of the historic black church, historic black colleges and universities. And even I was also thinking about just the important role as well of uh, black Greek letter organizations in that narrative yes. as well in yes, terms of justice seeking. Would you please share with the sisters at the table how they can learn more about your work and uh, what, what your, what's up next for you? Because I know there'll be many people that are going to be interested in following your research and contributions. Mm-hmm. So the book is out everywhere. Um, you can find it on uncpress.com, um, UNC Press, University of North Carolina Press. Uh, published this in 2019. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it uh, to, to use an old cliche, wherever books are sold, right? That's so, right. <laughs> uh, so please feel free to to, to go and, and pick it up. Uh, as I mentioned uh, to um, to you all earlier, I um, actually just finished um, taping an interview for um, the next PBS uh, documentary, which is going to be looking at the legacy of Black social networks. Uh, and, okay. and when we talk about social networks, we're talking about, again, Black institution building in the mm-hmm. 19th and 20th century and how it's created pathways uh, for the advancement of, of, of Black people. Uh, and not just for the advancement of Black people, but how out of these networks and out of these institutions, literally movements were born. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, that directly shaped the social political contours of our nation. And how can we recapture um, that legacy and make these institutions once again continue to become viable instruments uh, in the deconstruction of, of white supremacy? So be on the lookout for that. That's coming out uh, in, in 2022. Um, I'm actually a social movement historian by training. Uh, and so uh, as a social movement historian, my next book project um, actually looks at the importance of a, a lynching case. Mm. Um, that took place uh, in 1898 in, in Lake City, South Carolina. This is the lynching of Fraser Baker, who was a black postmaster um, mm. in, in in South Carolina, and um, they also lynched his one year old daughter. Uh, oh, and, and so Fraser Baker and his one year old daughters became victims of of a racist, violent white supremacist society in 1898. And the entire reason why Fraser Baker is is targeted. It's because he was a black postmaster and white folks in Lake City, South Carolina thought that that was too much. Right. They thought that he was out of place. Right. They thought that, you know, that he sat in a position of authority um, uh, when. And in fact, as Ida B. Wells once said, is that uh, he took a position when the white folks told him not to. Right. I'm kind of mm-hmm. paraphrasing what, yeah, what she right. said about that situation. But this is 1898 in Lake City, South Carolina, because he's a black postmaster, it actually produced, and this is very rare, produced a federal trial. So there's a trial that comes out of this. Uh, And so I want to examine the legacy uh, of that trial, um, but I also want to connect it to contemporary developments because um, the tentative title right now for the book is Losing Whiteness, um, Power, Privilege, and Murder in post-Reconstruction South Carolina. And I think that what we saw in 1898, I think that we're seeing today, right, is that there are a number of people in this country who believe that whiteness is losing in its political and social currency, that it's Mm -hmm. being eroded, right? That this is a nation that's becoming blacker and browner and all these other issues. And that that frightens them in the same way which it frightened them in 1898, right? I mean, in the same way which we got a, a, we we had a a black postmaster, a black mailman essentially giving white folks mail. You can fast forward that uh, uh, to, to just, uh, uh, just a few years ago, we had a black president, right? And, and, and that angered the, you know, it just angered, you know, a number of white folks who believed that, you know, this country was changing. We had, you know, white people taken to the air saying, I want my country back, right? Well, what country do you want back, right? Exactly mm-hmm. what has been taken from you? What are you losing? And and, and I think that what Fraser Baker's um, uh, case really tells us is there's a long history of of white Americans being afraid of losing whiteness, and what that would mean uh, in our society. And so, uh, you know, I think that the Fraser Baker case gives us a great opportunity to, to have that conversation, both about these, the, the past trial and the past incident of, uh, of Baker and his life and, and his family, uh, but also bring that up to a contemporary conversation about how some of these sentiments are still very much prevalent in our society. January 6th, I think, was a great example of that. 
we saw this violent attack against the United States Capitol yes, of, of yes, people, yes. you know, mm-hmm. saying that they want their country back. And I think that at the heart of that is this fear that whiteness is losing its currency in America and people will do any and everything to preserve that. And that's often been the historic truth. And and we need to, to examine that and talk about that uh, a little bit more in our work and our research. So that's my my next project. Uh, I'm, it's in the infant stages, um, but I, I'm beginning to pull that together and hopefully that'll be out uh, in another uh, few years or so. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, about the the research that you're doing now and with our sisters. Can you, Dr. Favors, can you tell them where they can follow you as well? Uh, I, I am only on Instagram, uh, so you can follow me okay. uh, on, inst- on Instagram at Dr. Uh, Jelani Favors, J-E-L-A-N-I Favors, Dr. Jelani Favors. Um, and, you know, I, I had some friends about uh, two or three years ago who said, "Look, you know." You can't you can't have a book coming out and not be on social media. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I don't really have a, a major social media presence, but I am on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram. I post a lot about the book, uh, about interviews that I've done uh, on there. Uh, please feel free to, to follow me there. Uh, and and you know this has been an incredible conversation. I really appreciate that. As someone who was born and raised in the, in the church, uh, it's always yeah. good to talk to some good church sisters and, yes. and have the conversation about uh, uh, who we are. And, and yes. what we've been as Black Christians in this country, and, and how we continue continue to use our our voices in an attempt to just you know try to to, to morally address uh, yes. some of the, the pitfalls of our society. Yes, yeah, you know, Doctor Favors, we we thoroughly enjoyed having you at the table, truly. And so, um, thank you for making the time to come and talk to us and teach us all the things about HBCUs. And y'all definitely, please get his book, Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Foster Generations of Leadership and Activism. And y'all, I love the book cover. I didn't get to tell you that, Dr. Famous, but I love the book cover. It's beautiful. Can I I briefly say something about that? Because no one ever asked me about the book cover. Go ahead. Go ahead. Love the book cover too. That's an that's an Elizabeth Catlett painting. Elizabeth Catlett was one of the last links to the Harlem Renaissance. Um, but wow. she's a grad. She was a graduate of Howard University, um, and she's an extremely prolific painter as well as a sculptor. Um, and I was fortunate enough to come. So the name of that painting is called Second Generation, uh, and she actually painted it in honor of her good friend, Margaret Walker. Margaret Walker was, of course, a very famous Harlem Renaissance poet, and they were good friends. Margaret Walker also taught English at Jackson State for a number of years. And and Margaret Walker had a a series of poems entitled For My People. And Mm -hmm. in that, she talks about this second generation emerging. And so Elizabeth Catlett painted that that, that painting. She was commissioned uh, to paint that uh, um, for her in honor of her friend, Margaret Walker. Again, it's entitled Second Generation. Uh, And and when you see, if you've never seen the book cover, if you've never seen uh, that art, it's it's an extremely striking piece. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and it shows and captures um, the power of, of Black youth and Black militancy. Uh, and I and when I saw it, I said, "This has got to be the cover of the book." And so, uh, and, and unfortunately, I was able to secure the license to uh, uh, to, to make that happen. So, thank you for, for acknowledging the artwork and, and the, uh, <laughs> the talent, the talent of Elizabeth. <laughs> hey, all the people are so intentional. Oh yes, say it very again. intentional. I'm sorry. Say it again. All the pieces are so intentional, including yes. this excerpt of Margaret Walker's uh, poem that's in the book and the cover. Yes. That's your storytelling. So we're just so grateful to have you here today. Yes. Thank you so Thank much. You. I really appreciate you guys having me. Sa- saving you. me room at the table. I appreciate Ah, that. yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Favors. And to our sisters, we want to thank y'all for taking a seat at the table with us this week. Let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts about We Gonna Learn Today, HBCU's past and present. Uh, And thank y'all for taking a seat at the table with us. We'll see you next time on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all. We want to thank you for taking a seat at the table with us this week. Let's keep the conversation going. Tweet us your thoughts about this episode using the hashtag Truth Table. Black women, did y'all know that we have our own Black Women's Discipleship Group on Facebook? Make sure to follow Truth Table on Facebook and join our Facebook group today. Invite your homegirls too. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Truth Table, or email us your thoughts at info at truthstable.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. 
Truth Table has a Patreon account now, so y'all can send your love offerings to patreon.com slash truthstable, or you can bless us at our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash truthstable. Truth Table is made possible by Pottery Studios. Visit pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for the show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York. We have been your hosts, Akemini, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all.